After all, these implements and texts designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 102, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by turning into Wolverine. Uh, not that Wolverine. No. Here we are in part three of our look at Marvel Comics X-Men event from 1995, The Age of Apocalypse. And uh, we are going to dig into uh, Astonishing X-Men, Factor X, Generation Next, Weapon X, and also read X-Men Chronicles number one and two with a concentration on number one. So uh, let's do a little recap here to, to bring us up to speed and then... Those listening to week to week, uh, we do apologize, and myself especially for not having a new episode last week. Uh, I had a bad Wi-Fi connection. It happens. To How's the best that? Of us. How's that for you? <laughs> I, t- I tells only the truth. Anyway, uh, so Legion, who is the son of Professor Charles Xavier, that is the leader of the X Men as we know him, went back in time to kill Magneto, which he believed would facilitate the realization of his father's dream of a peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants. And he accidentally killed Xavier instead. Whoops. Whoopsie. Uh, This would lead to a splintering of the time stream and a world where the ancient mutant apocalypse ascended to power. The time-displaced X-Man Bishop, who was present when Xavier was inadvertently murdered, remained, and then lived for two decades in this eventually dystopian world before meeting this dimension's X-Men, led by Magneto. Now, Bishop explains the situation as he remembers it, and though wary and suspicious, Magneto feels it might be something worth looking into. Now, in the ser- we're going to discuss the series that splinter out of this. We got the Astonishing X-Men, and in that, Rogue is going to lead a team to stop Apocalypse's son, Holocaust, from calling humanity. And that's a story we'll be wrapping up today. Uh, also, Amazing X-Men. Storm leads a team to the Northeast and helps grant uh, scared humans safe passage to, to Europe, which is a place that has not yet been conquered by Apocalypse. Oh, but he's on his way. Uh, mm-hmm. In Gambit and the Externals, Gambit and his gang shove off to space looking to steal a shard of the Mkran crystal. And in Factor X, Cyclops and Havoc argue. A lot. That's how brothers can be. Uh, They also run Mr. Sinister's pens. More on that in a little bit. In Excalibre, Nightcrawler (laughs) seeks out his mother Mystique so that together they can seek out Destiny. Uh, In Generation Next, Colossus and Kitty lead a team of young mutants into a human slave camp in the Pacific Northwest in order to search for Colossus' sister, Ilyana Rasputin. And we'll get to the bottom of that one today as well. Now over in Weapon X, Logan and Jean Grey work with the High Human Council in Eurasia, which will be our final book for today. And in X-Men, we meet Nate Grey, and we'll learn more about him next week. That's gonna, you're going to hear some of that in this episode, learning more about stuff <laughs> next week. That's the way it works. Uh, so have you been wondering what happened before Bishop met the X-Men? Mm. Yeah. 
neither have we. We have not really <laughs> wondered, but we've got the skinny for you anyway in X-Men Chronicles number one, March 1995 cover date. This is Origins by Howard Mackey and Terry Dodson. Let's give you some nuts and bolts. Howard Mackey was born January 22nd, 1958 in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. Raised mostly by his mother, his father having passed away when he was seven years old. Mackey started his career in comics in 1984 as an assistant editor for Mark Gruenwald. Early in Mackey's career, a running gag in Gruenwald's columns was that Mackey was a mysterious figure whose face no one at Marvel had ever seen. Howard said, I was working for an exporting company and having less fun than I thought I should be having. A good friend, tired of hearing me whining about how much my current job sucked, was aware that there was an editorial position opening up at Marvel. The job was to be Mark Gruenwald's assistant editor. The salary was pathetic. The friend was Mike Carlin. I think he went off to do something involving a guy with a red cape. I worked as Mark Gruenwald's assistant editing the core Avengers titles for a couple of years, and then received a promotion to managing editor. Nothing happened in that position, but I did start trying my hand at writing. It was strongly suggested at that time that assistants do something on the other side of the desk so that you could learn what it felt like to be a freelancer. Now, Mackey was promoted in early 1987 to managing editor of Special Projects, and then he would oversee Marvel's New Universe line. Uh, we discussed the Marvel's New Universe and its launch title, Star Brand Number 1, in episode 71 in the archives, though uh, if you're to listen to it, it is more of a uh, Jim Shooter bio Pretty than much. an actual uh, book review uh, or book reading. Uh, now, his writing debut would, it would happen in Iron Man Number 211. That has an October 1986 cover date and was penciled by Alex Saviak. And he thought that this first writing assignment would be his last writing assignment. <laughs> But it was not. Um, we got to say, though, we're probably more interested in what was likely his second credit as writer, where he wrote Chuck Norris Karate Commandos, with K, number four, from July 1987. Yeah, we got to get that one. That is a that's, must That's got to be on the list, I, yeah. I love Chuck. Uh, <laughs> Mackey first gained attention as a writer in 1990 when he and artist Javier Saltaris launched a new Ghostwriter series for Marvel. Uh, number one was cover dated May 1990. They revamped the character and introduced a new host for the Spirit of Vengeance of Danny Ketch. Mackey wrote the Ghost Rider until issue number 69, January 1996 cover date, and that was drawn by Salvador LaRocca. Mackey would become the regular writer of Web of Spider-Man with issue number 85 that has a February 1992 cover date, and he'd stick with the Spidey books until around the turn of the century through uh, reboots and also... That whole clone saga match hey. was just about in full swing during this age of apocalypse. Yeah. We're going to hop across the table. Terry Dodson, he comes from Oregon. He began working in 1991 for Revolutionary Comics. That's a company that put out black and white illustrated bios and stories about rock artists and rock groups. Uh, he first came to a mainstream prominence, prominence as the artist on Malibu Comics' Ultraverse title, Mantra. And that was 1993, and that was a character co-created with Mike W. Baugh. And that brings him right up to about this moment here. So mm -hmm. uh, we open the comic with Magneto standing atop of Vundagor Mountain. Oh, bored already. He's going to start talking any minute, I can feel it. Mm. Uh, he's checking out the headquarters he'd built there to house his X-Men. Remember, the stories featured in X-Men Chronicles are pre-X-Men Alpha. This is the prequel to the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, so Bishop hasn't shown up yet, and the X-Men team looks quite a bit different than we even know them to be in their different state that we've seen already. Uh, he's joined by Quicksilver, who informs him that the X-Men are currently getting ready to begin training in... The Killing Zone. 
Now, the killing zone is basically what we know as the danger room. Yeah, why did they even change the name? I mean, I, yeah. Like, why? Anyway. <laughs> now, in the killing zone, we meet these X-Men. We've got Storm, Iceman, Jean Grey, Colossus, and, of course, Quicksilver. Also, the Scarlet Witch, who we mistakenly bioed a few episodes ago when we thought she was Heaven's uh, lounge singer. I mean, why would they call her Scarlet when we already have one? Well, this is the Marvel Universe. I mean, right now, right this second, how many people are running around calling themselves Spider-Man? That's very true. I think Manhattan yeah. is pretty well covered by spider people <laughs> at this point. And we'll we'll come to another uh, name, uh, Mishagas, and it's a very same issue. We will, uh, yeah. Magneto looks on for a bit before deciding to join in. He's not an on-the-sidelines kind of leader, you know. Once this session ends, he insists they begin a new one, a level four exercise, which is apparently a pretty big deal since the X-Men have never done one yet. Now, at this point, we meet the newest X-Men, Weapon X. And uh, he still has both of his hands at this point, uh, because in the current Age of Apocalypse continuity, yeah. he's missing one. He is missing uh, one, yeah. <laughs> Now, he slices and dices the level four robots, but then he falls into a berserker rage. Magneto is able to settle him down by uh, slamming him into a wall. Is that, is, that, is that a good way to do it? I don't know. <laughs> might be. Uh, he might need an intermediary or something. There. But uh, now Gene then actually settles him down by soothing his mind. Whatever that means. Sure. Now uh, Magneto leaves Logan with the X-Men so they can have a little meet and greet. And then he excuses himself because he has yet another new recruit to welcome to the team. Meanwhile, in Manhattan, a massive ship hovers in the sky. The people of New York are greeted by a massive hologram projection of... Kendra, whose first appearance was in Gambit No. 1, December 1993 cover date, created by Howard Mackey and Lee Weeks. This is one of the immortal mutants known as the Externals and also part of both the Assassins and Thieves Guilds of New Orleans. Uh, She says she's the Herald of Apocalypse and warns that the era of humanity is at its end. Back at Wundagor, Magneto admires a photo of he and Charles Xavier. He's also aware, he's always brooding. He's, he's always doing that. He's, always, he's also aware that Apocalypse is about to make his move. But his thoughts are interrupted by... Bova! <laughs> Full name, Bova Arishire. <laughs> now, her first appearance was Giant Size Avengers number 1 from August 1974 cover, created by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. Now, if you haven't guessed, she's an evolved cow created by the High Evolutionary as one of his new men. Uh, she was a nursemaid and also a caretaker at Wundagore Mountain, and she chose to remain there after the Evolutionary decided to move on. She'd actually deliver Pietro and Wanda Maximoff uh, from her, their mother Magda. But would she uh, breastfeed them? And if were they at the other? same time? Yeah, that's that's what I'm <laughs> them and the other kids in town. Anyway, <laughs> come on over. Now, uh, during the uh, siege of Wundagore, her home was destroyed, and at that point, she ret- she decided to return and live with the uh, High Evolutionary. Now, back to the story. She lets Magneto know that his newest X Man is here, and it's Rogue. And she's being dropped off by Mystique. And they have an overly dramatic goodbye scene. It's, like, really something yeah. to see. I mean, like, it looks like something out of a romance comic. Mystique's, <laughs> like, covering her eyes, like, no, I must go. <laughs> oh, it's really something else. Now, uh, the X-Men enter to meet the newbie, and Iceman is instantly excited to see that, that, that the, new, the newbie is a gal his age. And he goes to touch her. 
And she, of course, freaks out. Maybe a little overly excited, I would say, but he is, he is a young fella. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, Magneto is well aware of Rogue's power curse, and he and says he knows that during an earlier abduction attempt, she'd retained some of the powers of Polaris. Real name Lorna Dane, first appearance in X-Men number 49, October 1968, cover date, created by Arnold Drake and Don Heck. Lorna was identified as a mutant by Cerebro, the mutant-finding machine, and her powers first emerged when she was under the control of the villain Mesmero. Throughout her entire existence, there was this wishy-washy, is she Magneto's daughter storyline going on, and we think at present, meaning the present of this event. Recording, yeah. yeah uh, or <laughs> even of this recording, she is, but it wasn't always that way. And, and hell, it might not even be that way this time next week. Who they knows? change it a lot. It, you know I, I don't mean? know if the I don't know if the movie rights are a big deal anymore. That might that uh, might affect uh, her her parentage. That might that might affect her adoption uh, <laughs> papers. We'll see. Uh, so after a to do in the Savage Land and a short stint as Magnetrix. Uh, that would be the Lady Magneto, I would guess, right? <laughs> Lorna would join the X-Men and would be even be taken captive by Krakoa, the Living Island. She'd get the Polaris name while, again, under the control of another. It was This time, it was the Shi'ar agent Eric the Red. Uh, Polaris and, and uh, Eric, Alex Summers would hit it off, and though there was briefly a love triangle with Iceman trying to make time with the green-haired lass. Lorna and Alex would leave the X-Men and work for a bit on Muir Island, and they'd be called back into action to help rescue the X-Men from Arcade's murder world. Later, Lorna went under the control of the Marauder, Malice. Malice would take control over heroes from time to time. Even Sue Richards, the Invisible Woman. Uh, you know, this is back when she dressed really, really trashy. Oh, uh, yes, the S&M Sue Richards yeah. outfit, yeah. We needed <laughs> some excuse that... for that to happen, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> now, it seems that uh, Malice and Lorna were actually a really good match because they somehow became grafted together. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, she got tied up with Zala Dane, who she thought was her sister. You know, get it? Lorna Dane? Zala Dane? Oh. Uh, then a secondary mutation, like a decade before they became fashionable. This mutation caused Polaris to grow a lot. She became huge. And uh, this would only last until around the Muir Island saga. Now, after that oft-mentioned saga, Lorna would join the new-look X-Factor alongside her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Havoc. Now, back to the story, Magneto promises Rogue that she's safe, and that together they'll search for a way for her to control her gift. And they hug. Oh. It's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> we shift seeds to the Cape Citadel nuclear defense arsenal, where we meet Apocalypse's Five horsemen, is that right? I, uh, One, two, three, yeah. Huh? Uh, all right, that's uh, <laughs> the new one. That's the new Bible. Uh, they include Contra, Sabretooth, and Gideon. Uh, first appearance, New Mutants number 98, uh, February 1991, created by Fabian Nicieza and Rob Liefeld. The external businessman with, with perhaps the worst, uh, the, the external's businessman with perhaps the worst haircut in X-Men lore. It's really bad. Uh, after Sunspot left the New Mutants, Gideon took him under his wing, believing him to be a fellow external. Turns out he was mistaken. The external was actually Roberto's partner, Cannonball. Yeah, and we don't talk about that storyline. <laughs> uh, we also have the Horseman of War, who doesn't get named, and the Horseman of Death, 
who also doesn't get uh, me. You know, whatever. Yeah, and they're both new characters. How exciting! <laughs> now, <laughs> the the horsemen are planning something, obviously. Uh, now, it's worth noting that Cape Citadel was the site of Magneto's first face-off with the X-Men, way back in X-Men number one, September 1963 cover. Uh, this is also where the public was alerted to the very existence of mutants to begin with. Oh. Yeah, we hop back to Vundagor. Scarlet Witch gives Rogue basically the lay of the land. She even, you know, I, I guess when you go to, when you join Magneto's team, you have to hear about what happened to Professor Xavier. Oh, everybody, yeah. They should have, they should have a hallway lined with pictures. That's what is she, I think there might be one. I, I, I think there is actually a picture there, but I'm, I'm thinking just like take you through a whole like timeline, you know, back in the long ago. <laughs> With like an animatronic Xavier, like <laughs> uh, linking it. I, I am Professor <laughs> X. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Quicksilver does what he does best. He rushes in to sound some alarms about what's going down at Cape Citadel. Yeah, that's pretty much all he ever does is rush. He runs in, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, the horsemen are having one hell of a time messing fools up at that base. Looks like Sabretooth is in charge of that uh, fray. Also looks like the other horsemen don't like the fact that he's in charge. Uh, they bust inside and Sabretooth informs the team that what they're looking for is underground. But before that, let's head back to Vundagor. Again! Uh, Magneto views what's going on at the Cape and he laments the fact that they were too late to save the folks that the horsemen have already killed. And so the X-Men hop on their jet and head toward America and they leave uh, the Scarlet Witch and Rogue behind. As the X-Men jet off, we can see that Magneto's citadel is being watched by a very large blonde man named Nemesis, mm. who we know better as Holocaust. Okay. <laughs> now, after nearly hitting Apocalypse's cloaked ship, the X-Men arrive at the Cape, and they infiltrate. But back at Vundagor, <laughs> Nemesis attacks the complex. Uh, we can see that inside there are young mutants in training, and they're unnamed and sort of a simplified blend of new mutants and... Generation X costumes, sort of general mutant folk. Uh, Rogue sneaks behind Nemesis and gives him a whack, and he hits her back twice as hard. So Scarlet Witch gets involved and actually manages to hurt Nemesis with her hex bolts. Sucks to be her. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at the Cape, Gideon taps into the network and arms the nukes. Sabretooth is taken aback and believed they were just there to control the nukes. Come on, Creed. What, what, what do you think I they mean, were going to do with them? Why, what we're going to go get the nukes just you, to control them. You're controlling them to stir the pudding? I mean, what do you do with nukes, buddy? That's all there is to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, Kandra deems uh, Sabretooth unfit and pops him into a telekinetic bubble. But then the X-Men show up. Uh, Sabretooth convinces the horsemen that, you know, they might need him for this fight. And they agree, so he fights alongside them. Right. And, uh, you know, this is where we get our requisite Sabretooth Wolverine fight or Weapon X fight. Gene <laughs> uh, pairs off with Kandra. Uh, Magneto breaks away and heads inside to stop Gideon from tampering with them nukes. Doesn't go so well for Magneto, as Gideon has the power to amplify and redirect Magneto's own powers against him. Whoopsie. Mm -hmm. uh, outside, Storm Best Death. Uh, the, you know, the horseman death, not... The other death. The concept. <laughs> uh, and Colossus and Iceman de defeat war again. <laughs> Not the concept. Uh, Weapon X severs Sabretooth's spine, and so there's that too. That happens. Uh, Magneto then draws power from Earth's magnetic field and blasts Gideon so hard it overloads him and the base explodes. Apocalypse emerges from his ship and looks down at the X Men. He claims to be impressed with the ease in which they took down his horsemen, even goes so far as to say he'd welcome them onto his side if not for their being tainted by Magneto. 
Speaking of Magneto, he's looking at a picture of Professor... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, he's out <laughs> and congratulates his X-Men for a job well done. Later, the X-Men return to Vundagore, where they find Wanda... Dead. <gasps> very, very sad. Yeah. Moment of silence, and we hop right into X-Men Chronicles number two. This is June 1995. It's called Shattered Dreams by Howard Mackey and Ian Churchill. Now, since we already met Howard Mackey, let's meet Ian Churchill. Now, he was born April 22nd, 1969, in the United Kingdom. Uh, if you want a trip, you can check out this fellow's Wikipedia page. It, it lists his, quote, early work as working with Jeff Loeb on Supergirl, which came out around a decade after the Age of Apocalypse. Ooh, maybe he was trying to excise all those years he spent drawing like Rob Liefeld, huh? Probably. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Now, prior to the Age of Apocalypse, Ian worked primarily on the X-Books. Uh, his first was a 10-page story called Beast Foot Forward, and that appeared in the X-Men Annual, Volume 2, Number 2, from 1993. He'd have stints drawing uh, for Cable's ongoing, also Deadpool's second miniseries, and... Sabretooth Classic, which is a title that actually existed in the real world and uh, and ran for over a year. You Can't know, believe that. And it was good because I was tired of all those like modern Sabretooth. <laughs> Can we get down to the classic, the you know, the core Sabretooth? <laughs> anyway, I mean, we, we can't get an Avengers title that lasts a year now. We get a Sabretooth yeah. Classic. I know, it's kind of amazing. Oh boy. Now, we picked this story up in New Mexico. We're still pre Bishop's arrival. However, we're post-Weapon X losing his left hand, so a lot of stuff happened. Somewhere in those two, between those two issues, yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of Weapon X, he tells Magneto that he and Gene quit. And uh, it's here that we learn that on an earlier adventure, the X-Men abandoned Gene at one of Apocalypse's camps. Hey, Weapon X says, now why don't you go have the rest of your ex kiddies back off before one of them gets cut, hoser? Uh, Sabretooth goes, you're playing with fire, runt. You even breathed too hard, and we're going to be all over you. Been waiting a long time to take a piece out of your hide. Magneto cuts him off. Sabretooth, this is between Logan and me. No one here wants to fight. Oh, that's where you're wrong, bub. I'm itching for one. Been that way since the day you had us abandoned Gene to Apocalypse's camps, you betcha. <laughs> now it's here that it's revealed that Weapon X was the one who rescued her, and that it cost him his hand. Now, Gene tries to calm Logan down and suggests that they just leave without further incident. And so they do. On the way out, though, she telepathically communicates with Magneto. Yes, and mentally says, Magneto, I understand why you did what you did, but right now, Logan needs me more than the team does. Forgive yourself. I have. Now we shift scenes to what was formerly Spokane, Spokane, Spokane is that how we say it? Spokane, Washington? Spokane, sure, that's fine. Spokane, One of those. Yeah. Somewhere in Washington, it is in Seattle. Uh, now, Holocaust stands among the wreckage. Uh, now, to make this podcast even more confusing, he is soon joined by Wolverine. Not, not that not one. Not that one. <laughs> First appearance? Right now. Now, this Wolverine is a giant of a man and a product of McCoy's genetic tampering. And that's all we got. And really, that, that's all we need. Now, did they name him Wolverine specifically to confuse me? Because it worked. It did cause me to have to read uh, this issue like three times. Yeah, I think that was the point. I, was, I, the point, right? I got my money's worth. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> what? But did I just, I was, you know, because you just see him. But 
the way it is is that this is Wolverine in this world. This is Wolverine, and the one we know is Wolverine is Weapon X. Weapon that's, X. That's the idea, and of course, it, it was smart to do that with what was Marvel's inarguably most popular character at the time. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the you can have the the solicits like yeah, so Wolverine and Holocaust. Exactly, uh, Wolverine <laughs> dies on the street. Yes, Wolverine in this issue, Wolverine dies. Yeah. Now, uh, at this point, Holocaust gives his next order. Yeah, he says. I've come up with something special for you, something which I think you'll find amusing. I'm sure you've heard of the band Rebels, known as the X-Men of Magneto. Wolverine goes, he's the one that hurt you so bad, made you wear that life support armor. The very one. Word has reached me that two of his rank have left the Rebel fold. You, you, You want me to find and kill him, boss? No, their leaving will have caused a chink in Magneto's armor, a weakening of the ranks. That will have hurt the X-Man, wounded his ego. I want you to find Magneto and cause him to suffer even more. I want you to find them and... Before he can finish this thought, they are jumped by a human. A stupid human. It does not work very well for this human. It just seems to get this scene just kind of comes and goes, but I guess it's, right? it's to show their brutality and how, you know, little the humans are. And then they continue their chat. Now, what, what do you want me to do with them when I find Magneto? They're find him and kill the closest to him while he looks on. He wasn't there when I killed his daughter, but he has another child. The boy Quicksilver. I want Magneto to be burdened with the death of both his children. As I am burdened with this armor, then, knowing his suffering, I will kill him. A few days later, the X-Men survey the damage of what used to be Denver, Colorado. They're also there to track a horde of bandits who have really bad mohawks. And, uh, as we come to expect, Magneto talks a lot. This is the area which the bandit horde was last sighted. Quicksilver, you and Sabretooth have the point. And Sabretooth? This time, when you find the bandits, wait until the rest of us arrive before dealing with them. You know, Mags, sometimes you can be a real wet blanket. Yeah, no kidding. Right? <laughs> I know. Iceman, Storm. <laughs> <laughs> At least he knows. At least he's aware. That's the first step. I know. Iceman, Storm, the three of us will keep close to the terrain. I don't want to announce our arrival prematurely. Gambit, you and Rogue watch the surrounding buildings for any sign of hostile activity. Colossus, keep an eye on all of our backs. Now, the X-Men have no trouble fighting the bandits because, come on, they're the X-Men. Even in this alternate world, they can pretty much do it. Uh, Magneto is upset that his team doesn't appear to be taking this all that seriously. Enough! This is battle, not a training session. You're all taking far too long with this operation. We must act quickly, directly, brutally. If these had been Apocalypse's infinites instead of mere bandits, we would have lost some of our own number already. Weapon X and Gene knew the value of expediency. Well, it's too bad you ran them off then, isn't it? Right? You know, you should have maybe uh, kept them on. Uh, So Rogue and Gambit note that Magneto seems distracted, uh, though he seems uh, concentrating enough to orate for minutes at a time, so not too distracted. (laughs) Uh, nearby, another pair of bandits look on, and they get their noggins crushed by Wolverine. Again, uh, not that Wolverine. No, not him. Now, the, this noggin crushing uh, fills them with amazing powers, and then they rush in to fight the X-Men. Yeah, the nerd says, Kill them! Kill them! Kill the them! Goes, 
The other one goes, Magneto, kill them, make him bleed. And uh, Gambit whacks one on the head with his staff. Uh, the other throws a obviously non-ferrous knife, which lodges into Magneto's back. Wolverine, not that Wolverine, is confused. <laughs> and so are we. <laughs> we are all confused. Now, he was led to believe from his chat with Holocaust that Quicksilver would be the closest person to Magneto. However, by all appearances, he seems much more intimate with the duo of Rogue and Gambit. Uh, now, back at the X-Men's base, Magneto gets patched up. He's annoyed at Gambit for ordering a retreat during the Denver boondoggle, but the rest of the X-Men side with the Cajun. Now, before taking his leave, Gambit makes a little time with Rogue. That's what he does. Gambit says, <laughs> <laughs> Me and his sudden Belle got plenty of living to do together. Come on, Cher. Let's me and you go relax somewhere together for sure. <laughs> and Rogue says, Not now, sugar. I want to stay behind and go over next week's plans with Magneto. Iceman says, Not to worry, Cajun. You'll always have me to snuggle up to. Gambit, kissing Rogue's gloved hand, says, Looky me, chair, don't go talking too long. Me and you got some real important things to talk about. Back in Denver, Wolverine, not that Wolverine, drafts a bunch of punks in hope of taking his fight straight to the X-Men's doorstep. Back in New Mexico, Iceman really rides Gambit about his relationship with Rogue. Yeah, Iceman says... <laughs> Please don't turn this into another rogue. It's just the sweetest little thing I ever laid eyes on, Session. I've heard it all too many times. Gambit. Can't help it, Bobby. To girls something special. Oh, no. Say it isn't so. The raging Cajun. The last of the great ladies' men. My idol in the art of Amore. Has had his heart pierced by Cupid's arrow. How can I go on? What can I say? I never expected to settle down with any one woman. But it's certainly not in this godforsaken world. But... Then, Bobby asks the tough questions. All kidding aside, have you thought it through? I mean, her powers. You can never touch her. Never. Come on, Bobby. You think I'm only interested in Rogue for the physical thrill of it all? In part... Probably. I mean, I would think so. That has something to do with it, right? Now, the chat ends with Bobby splooshing Gambit in the face with with a snowball. All right. An, an actual snowball. Oh, Come on. Come on. <laughs> Elsewhere, they're having fun. Can't you, they are loving don't life. Don't you let two guys just having a gas? <laughs> uh, anyway, elsewhere in the compound, Magneto and Rogue share a moment. Uh, Magneto talks a lot, as usual, and they share a glance. <laughs> One that freaks Rogue out enough to cause her to rush out of the room. Elsewhere outside the compound, Wolverine, not that Wolverine, finds the X-Men scent. And again, not that Wolverine, even though they, they both seem to have that scent thing yeah, going, right? Yeah, they even have, they, they even look similar. This was clearly done just to annoy me. <laughs> now, a short time later, back inside the compound, Rogue chats with Quicksilver. And they reminisce a little bit about the Scarlet Witch, and they also talk about their roles in the X-Men team. Rogue feels a little bit guilty about becoming Magneto's second-in-command when Pietro, his own son, isn't. Quicksilver's totally cool with it. It's fine. Yeah, now the talk is interrupted by the arrival of, you guessed it, Gambit. Well, here you are. I've been looking all over for your chair. Quicksilver goes, I'll just assume you're talking about Rogue and move to the side to my other sunset. Pretend I'm not even here. 
And he does just that. <laughs> Rogue, I've got something on my mind that I just can't wait for sure. I want you to know that I'm ready for a commitment, I guarantee. Your powers will learn to deal with them. All that's important to is us. Could you say something I share? I'm feeling kind of foolish standing here. Anything, please. Rogue runs away. Ah, ah. I'm sorry, Remy. I'm so sorry. What just happened here? I don't know, Gambit, but I think you and my father need to have a talk. Soon. And so Gambit tracks Magneto down and finds him in the middle of a training session. Well, looky here. Just the man I've been looking for. Magneto, if you got a moment, I need to talk to about Rogue. She's acted awful peculiar and I was wondering. Gambit, we are training. Either be silent and watch or... Join in and be silent anyway. Listen to this guy demanding silence. Come on. <laughs> of all people. Uh, at that moment, directly outside the compound, Wolverine, not that Wolverine, and the bandits are, arrive. Worst band name ever, right? Really? <laughs> now, uh, after the training session, Gambit manages to get a moment of Magneto's time. If you've got a minute. I'm sorry about busting in the practice and mouthing off and all. It's just, it's rogue. She's got me all twisted round inside. You mind if I bend your ear about her a little bit? Could it wait, Remy? I need to... Well, I promise to keep it short. Gambit goes on to explain his intense feelings for Rogue, but uh, can't go on too long because the lady herself shows up. <clears throat> Excuse me, Gambit. I've got to talk to Magneto. It's very important. Gambit, gentleman that he is, gives Rogue and Magneto their space. It's now that Magneto demonstrates to Rogue that by creating an electromagnetic shield around his body, they might just be able to touch, you know, skin to skin. And what do you know, it works. Now Rogue's eyes well up with tears. Uh, she's happy to finally feel the touch of another, or or at least to touch of another's electromagnetic yeah, shield. Baby steps. We're getting there, you know. <laughs> now, someone far less pleased about this situation is Gambit, who has literally been lurking <laughs> in the trees watching them and saw the whole thing go down. What a creep. Right? And uh, so Gambit's eyes go red, er, and he lashes out. Chin! Treacherous dog! I'll kill you! Remy! What are you doing? Yeah, real smooth guy, you right? creeper. Me? What am I doing? You're the one standing here for sure, touching her, looking at her like, like, why, Eric? Why? You were my friend. My friend. Gambit turns to look at Rogue. And you? I saw the look in your eyes when he touched you. Did it feel good? Remy, please don't. Just because you gave Wanda your vow to look after the old man doesn't mean you have to. Rogue slaps Gambit, complete with a, How dare you? <laughs> Maybe I deserve that. But whether you know it or not, Cher, you're going to have to choose real soon. Either him or me, I guarantee. I gotta say, it sort of seems like she's already chosen, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, this, is, this is like the guy, you know, while a woman's getting married. You're going to have to choose some point. Gonna have to make... You can't fire me, I quit. Yeah, yeah. exactly, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> then, the alarm sounds. The X-Men, minus Gambit, rush into action because Gambit stops for a cigarette. He's gotta have that, yeah. Now, inside the compound, Wolverine and the bandits strike, 
Not that Wolverine. Uh, Wolverine actually manages to land a Shrek on Magneto's back. Rogue throws herself on top of the fallen Magneto. Wolverine says, Sorry, Magneto. You're not going to be able to do too much talking to the pretty lady. I don't know who you are, but if you've killed him, I swear I'll... He won't die. I need him to live. Live to see you die. Goodbye. (laughs) By now, Gambit's already finished his smoke, and he leaps into the fray. Literally leaps into the fray. It's not going to happen, mon ami. I got some feelings left for the lady. Wolverine ain't terribly impressed, and he backhands Gambit with a crack. Next, Rogue attempts to whap Wolverine, but looks to hurt her hand in the process. Wolverine, not that Wolverine, attempts to reason with Rogue. He says, if she lets him kill her, he'll spare Magneto. Which, those are his orders anyway. He was supposed to save Magneto for Holocaust, so it's sort of an empty offer here. But uh, Gambit lunges in for another punch. That's it? A punch in the gut? You expect me to crumble? I've been slapped harder by little girls. All right, we got to hear that story next, right? Wolverine. What's what happened there? But uh, <laughs> when did you get in, why, into it with little girls? When did the little? Why were the little girls? How many of them? I need to know a lot more there. Uh, Gambit says, "Well, actually, I never considered taking you out with the punch. You see that there rock behind your belt? That's right, the one that's glowing." Yes, since this is a podcast, we will let you know there is in fact a glowing there rock. There is a glowing there. rock. Yes. Uh, well, it's all part of my power is to turn potential energy into kinetic energy. What the? And Wolverine goes, Bracoom! And the X-Men are victorious. But Gambit quits the team. So now we know. Why and how, sort of what <laughs> led up to the uh, events of the Age of Apocalypse. And now we can dive right back into now. Did these come out? This is a sequence these came out, Chris. These two come out. No, in the no middle these of are the, the I just picked different uh, different miniseries. It's just to wrap them up. Yeah, so no, I, are, I hear you. The, we're the, jumping all over in the order. In the order for the you know the online order, they put these obviously first, but I they didn't come out first. I think right? They no, no, they did. No, they came but, out later. Yeah. So that was nice to fill in. Fill in answered all of your questions. Obviously, yeah, you never knew you had yeah. made it crystal clear. You were like, oh, now it all makes sense. <laughs> anyway, so let's dive right back into the story proper, beginning with Astonishing X Men number two, April nineteen ninety five cover date. This is titled No Exit by Scott Lubdell and Joe Maduera. We have Scott Lubdell. Met him in the last episode, so here's the fast version. He's born either August 24th, 1960, or someday during 1963, perhaps in or near Marlboro, New York. He didn't grow up a comic book fan, only resorting to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery. He studied psychology in college for two years and then worked on a college newspaper as a writer and cartoonist and would do some interviews, including editor Al Milgram, who he felt he had an in with at Marvel. For the next year and a half, he'd regularly travel to Marvel HQ and drop off story synopses and began networking with a few Marvel editors. He'd pitch a story to Tom DeFalco for the Marvel Comics Presents anthology, where he'd use obscure characters because, had he chosen a big-name character, it would probably have to be okayed by upwards of four editors. Uh, He would go on to become the architect of the X-Men line and took part in many crossovers, including this one. Hopping across the table to Joe Mad, born December 3rd, 1974, he's half Portuguese. He attended the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. While still in high school, he was an intern at Marvel Comics working under Danny Fingeroth. 
First published work was an eight-page story that appeared in Marvel Comics Presents number 89, November 1991 cover date. The story was called What's Wrong With This Picture? And it's a story starring Mojo and was written by Dan Slott. Prior to taking the gig on Uncanny X-Men, Joe provided art for X-Family Books Excalibur. That was issues 57 and 58. He also did the Deadpool Circle Chase miniseries in 1993. He joined Uncanny X-Men as the regular writer. If you say regular in quotes, he, he didn't make every issue. Okay. Uh, now, he came on with issue 312. This is May 1994, and less than a year later, he took part in the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, so hopping in the comic, uh, we got Rogue's team arriving in Chicago to put a stop to Holocaust's next culling. The humans are, as you might imagine, going nuts. <laughs> One of the humans bears the tattoo of Iron Fist. Real name, Danny Rand. First appearance, Marvel premiere number 15, May 1974, cover date. Created by Roy Thomas, Gil Kane, and Bill Everett. Trained under Lee Kung, the Thunderer, in the mystical city of Kun Lun. Went to America and met Professor Lee Wing and his daughter, Colleen. Also, Colleen's partner, Misty Knight, who Rand would start a relationship with. Danny would team up with many of Marvel stars of the 70s, including White Tiger, Shang-Chi, Jack of Hearts, and of course... Luke Cage to create the Heroes for Hire. With uh, Danny would seemingly die in their final issue, uh, Power Man and Iron Fist number 125, September 1986, but he got better, so that's fine. Of course, yes. <laughs> now, while, while trying to calm the humans down, Sunfire's power starts going crazy, and he ignites. The humans, as you might imagine, continue going nuts, as now they think Holocaust's hordes have already arrived. After being sort of kind of calmed down, Shiro suggests not worrying about getting the humans to safety and instead concerning themselves with taking on Holocaust head on. Uh, then he heads skyward and starts blowing up Holocaust probes with his flame powers. Now Rogue catches up with him and informs him that he's really only making matters worth. worse. She touches him with her bare hand, which takes us to flashback time. Suntire was captured by Holocaust and Apocalypse after destroying his homeland of Japan. And he kind of blames himself for the whole thing, which is why he's wigging out here. The flashback is short, as during it, Apocalypse choked poor Shiro out. So, <laughs> you know, he doesn't remember much after the lights went out. <laughs> Back in the present, Shiro's got hard feelings about Rogue's callous invasions of his memories. Rogue attempts to reason with him, assuring him that the fall of Japan wasn't his fault. Shiro comes around and goes on task now helping the X-Men evacuate the humans. Back in Westchester, uh, Magneto is approached by Bishop. Bishop is ticked that the X-Men are out risking their lives while Magneto hides at home. What Magneto is actually doing is cradling his son while he falls asleep. And looking at Professor Xavier's picture, of course. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. <laughs> uh, now Bishop goes to apologize, but Magneto ain't, ain't, he ain't hearing it. Because, uh, you know, if Bishop is correct with all of his nonsense he's been spouting, and this world was never meant to be, that also means that Charles Lencher, the baby, was never meant to be born. And if this mission goes according to plan, he will never be born. So he wants to spend as much time with him as possible. Uh, Magneto asks Bishop to leave so he can spend what may very well be his final night with his son. Over in Manhattan, Apocalypse watches the events of, the, of Amazing X-Men unfold, and we'll discuss the rest of that series next week. Uh, and you'll hear that, that phrase again, like I said. Uh, Rex enters the stronghold and reveals that he was able to deduce the X-Men's location. It's, you know, in Westchester. Duh, we just saw them there. So Apocalypse readies his men for a visit. They're going to get in the Metro North, I guess. Probably get off <laughs> peak hours right up to uh, Westchester. 
Uh, back, back to Chicago, Sabretooth pulls Blink aside, and he's got a proposition. No, no, not, nothing like that. Oh. He, he just wants her to take him to Holocaust. Well, Clarice isn't sure what to do. It's revealed here that Victor Creed once saved her life from abyss, and she hates the idea of sending him to certain doom. But Blink eventually comes around and agrees. Not so fast, Blink. Rogue might have something to say about that. Yeah, probably something along the lines of no. Uh, Now, Blink uses her powers to briefly displace Rogue, allowing her a fraction of a second in order to send Sabretooth and Wildchild directly to Holocaust. Who's hanging out in Indianapolis? (laughs) Why? (laughs) The nicest time of year, I guess. The races. Uh, Now, uh, (laughs) Sabretooth runs into Holocaust nearly straight away, and they briefly reminisce about the long ago. Sabretooth ain't too keen to continue chatting. Sabretooth, uh, I mean, Holocaust does the whole Bond villain thing, and he reveals that he sent all of the surviving humans to an infinite processing plant nearby. Sabretooth unhooks Wildchild from his leash and sends him off, and then he leaps into battle with his old running buddy Nemesis. While they fight, it's revealed that Holocaust wears his armor due to an injury he'd suffered at the hands of Magneto. They fight. Holocaust wins. And we learned about him getting that injury in the Chronicles, but we mm-hmm. didn't really learn what the injury was, but I guess that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's good enough for uh, us. Yeah. Astonishing X-Men number 3, May 1995, cover date. This is titled In Excess by Scott Lobdell, Jeff Loeb, and Joe Mad. Now, the only guy we don't know here is Jeff Loeb. This is Joseph Jeff Loeb III, born January 29th, 1958, in these United States. Perhaps somewhere around Stanford, Connecticut, because that's where he grew up, but we're not positive. Uh, Jeff would meet Elliot S. Smaggin at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. Jeff did not attend. He did, however, graduate from Columbia University in New York with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. Loeb's filmmaking debut was writing Teen Wolf with Matthew Wiseman, which was released August 23, 1985, starring Michael J. Fox. When Loeb was working on the screenplay for DC comic character The Flash... The deal fell through. Fortunately, not before Jeff had the opportunity to meet then-DC Comics head honcho Jeanette Kahn, who asked him to write some comics. His first work was the eight-issue Challenges of the Unknown miniseries that ran from March through October 1991 cover dates, which saw him paired with a fellow he'd collaborate with a whole bunch, kind of become a duo, uh, Tim Sale. And uh, by the way, that Challengers did recently get reprinted in a trade, I think, so if you want to look at it. yeah. Uh, Loeb would do a few one-off stories for DC Comics, including Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween Special, prestige format, December 1993. Then, he'd do Cable for Marvel, which became X-Men. Now, into the story, a fresh-off-the-leash wild child arrives in Chicago with a whole bunch of infinites hot on his trail. They eventually catch him. No, I, I gotta stop you for a second, Chris. <laughs> do, do we find out why wild child is on a leash? Because he's wild. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I think that's as good, good. what we're going to get. Yeah, a question asked and answered. Fine, that's good. Now we have Holocaust arrives, and he stomps right on poor Kyle, that's Wild Child's head. But I guess more in a symbolic way, because it doesn't get all smushed. Wild Child sniffs, and then decides to play dead. Holocaust starts monologuing at the at the believed-to-be KO'd Wild Child, promising that he and the X-Men will only live long enough for Apocalypse to personally see to their individual deaths. The Holocaust, the um, sorry, the Infinites are confused. Uh, you know, after all, there's no way Holocaust could have beaten them from Indy to Chicago. Hmm. Oh, this is very weird. You figure this out yet? Mm-hmm. It is, of course, Morph. 
the whole time. Once he has Wild Child in hand, he pulls the old Michigan J Frog top hat and cane routine and dances away. <laughs> and this really confuses the infinites. I was I'm pretty confused myself, but all right. Man. Morph Morph does like Morph does. He's morphing around. Uh, then Sunfire arrives to burn them all to death. Blink and Rogue pop out of the Blink disc, and a Wild Child licks the ladder on the cheek so she can absorb his memories. So now they know where Victor is. In Indianapolis, Holocaust hoists the chain body of Creed aloft, showing him that the infinite processing plant he'd mentioned last issue. He refers to it as the heart of Apocalypse's empire. In Indiana? Really? Maybe he means like the heartland of Apocalypse's empire? I don't know. Real, real estate's pretty cheap out there, so that probably That's has true. something to do with it. Yeah. Now they bicker for a bit, which segues us right into a flashback. And it's a flashback of Sabretooth and Weapon X rescuing Blink during the good old days. Uh, this isn't actually Sabretooth's memory, but it's a segue into Blink, because she has just shared that story with the rest of the X-Men. We hop back to Xavier's, and guess what? Bishop and Magneto are having another argument. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this time, Bishop's packing heat. You see, Magneto just wants to be sure that Bishop is capable of killing if and when they travel back to the past. I'd love to see the argument like Bishop's just like, I want to look at Xavier's photo for a while. <laughs> Magneto, no, I have to look for it. Anyway, uh, while they go back and forth, Nanny enters holding baby Charles, and she transforms into an egg or cocoon, a Transformation referred to as DEFCON Armageddon. This can only mean Apocalypse has found them. Back at the Infinite's plant in Indianapolis, Holocaust monologues. Then an intruder alarm sounds, but it's only a giant whale washed up several hundred miles inland. Figure it out yet? Hmm? Hey, it's Morph again. Hey, then. you! <laughs> and when he opens his giant whale mouth, all the X-Men pour out. And then he changes into an octopus to crush the bad guys. So he's keeping it on theme, I guess. Uh, now, we, we wrap up this issue with Blink finding Sabretooth chained to a pole, and his chest is torn open. I mean, Whoa. you see his ribs hanging out and everything. It's Gross. a pretty gruesome scene. And then we, are, we go to the final issue of Astonishing X-Men, Astonishing X-Men number four from June 1995. is Holocaust by Scott Lobdell and Joe Mad. Start with Blink confronting Holocaust. And they fight. Holocaust hurls Blink, however, she just as she opens a portal and pops right back out to punch him in his face. Uh, then she, you know, she opens another portal under Holocaust, which leads to him taking a dip in a vat of acid, which is handy. Nice. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, the X-Men fight a bunch of infinites. Morph tries to make light of the situation, but the X-Men are less than receptive, you know, since... Best case scenario, they all die tonight. <laughs> in Manhattan, Apocalypse has taken Magneto hostage. This will occur in a book we're going to be talking about next week. Uh, Apocalypse forces Magneto to watch Rogue's team on one of his hollow screens. He then tells Magneto that he's waited 2,000 years to rule the world, then KOs him with a snap of his fingers. Back in Indianapolis, the group of infinites are preparing to execute a group of flat scans. Nearby, Wild Child howls into the night. Sunfire then blasts into the scene and incinerates the bad guys before freeing the prisoners. Elsewhere inside the plant, Blink catches up with the rest of the X-Men. And just then, Holocaust bursts out of the acid vat. Rogue, Morph, and Blink take the fight to Apocalypse Jr. Holocaust whams the hell out of Rogue. Which is to say, you know, he punches her really hard. Don't yeah. think anything else. Uh, Morph then morphs into the form of Baby Charles to bring her back to her senses. And she proceeds to beat the crap out of Holocaust, 
right onto a teleplatform. Now, Holocaust hits the activation button to teleport both he and Rogue away, if not for a handy ice lasso from Iceman. We end this uh, volume with the Astonishing X-Men standing ready to face what's to come. Next, X-Men Omega. And then, go to the other miniseries here. We got Factor <laughs> X, number two. <laughs> next, All of these next stories... only for that series, folks. We <laughs> yeah, have a bunch yeah. more books to get through before oh, yeah. that. Yeah, we're going to be saying next X-Men Omega three more times. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> this is Factor X, number two, April 1995. Stories called Abandoned Children by John Francis Moore and Steve Epting. Let's give you a little bit on JFM here. He was born 1968 somewhere in the United States of America. Not a whole lot about this fellow online, so we'll just talk about some of the things he'd worked on before this Age of Apocalypse event. He wrote a few original graphic novels for DC Comics, including Batman slash Houdini, The Devil's Workshop in 1993, and Superman Under a Yellow Sun in 1994. The latter was actually presented as a, quote, novel that was written by Clark Kent. He's also responsible for the hip, cool 90s take on Dr. Fate, but uh, we won't hold that against him. No. Uh, over at Marvel, Moore worked on the, in the 2099 department, writing for both Doom 2099 and X-Men 2099, and he'd pop over to X-Factor with issue 108, November 1994, cover date, and stick around long enough to take part in this year, Age of Apocalypse event. Across the table, we got Steve Epting. He received a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design from the University of South Carolina. In 1989, Epting read about a contest being held by independent publisher First Comics looking for some new talent. The winning story was to be published by the company, only the contest didn't actually exist. Epting would be declared one of the quote-unquote winners anyway and do fill-ins on First titles Dread Star and Whisper. By 1991, First was out of business, and after sending some samples around the industry, Epting found work at Marvel Comics on the Avengers. From here, he would jump over to the X-Books and even take part in this, the massive Age of Apocalypse event. Into the story, we meet up with Lorna Dane. We know her as Polaris, and she's dreaming that Magneto has come to save her from the Black Tower, which is the home of the Brain Trust. Their first appearance is now. Right. They are a they're they're jar they're brains in jars. It's a collection of <laughs> in vitro brains of six telepaths that were bred by Mr. Sinister in order to keep prisoners of the pen from even thinking about escaping. Considering how many we've already read tried to escape, I'm really not sure why he even bothered. Meanwhile, Cyclops and Havoc chat up apocalypse regarding Mr. Sinister's disappearance and or betrayal. Again? <laughs> this this gotta be the fourth time we're having this conversation, right? Yeah, I, they, that's pretty much all they ever tell him. <laughs> Anything new? No, just that. Again. Yep. Now, Apocalypse picks Cyclops as the new leader of the Pens, suggesting that he might also be in line to become a horseman. Poor <laughs> Havoc is probably thinking, yeah, really? are you freaking kidding me? Uh, now, I've been working here a long time, pal. You right? know? <laughs> and and, I, and, and I, I don't care about killing kids. I'll do that. But uh, now Scott promises to do his best. Alex attempts to add something, but Apocalypse just waves his hand in its face. It's really sad. Yeah, he's just like, go go away with you. (laughs) Uh, Later, Havoc and the Guthries check out some security footage, which reveals that a cloaked figure did indeed attempt to assist Lorna Dane. They question her, and by question, we mean beat. Uh, She's sure it was Magneto helping her, but you see, she's also insane. Uh, Lorna lashes out at Alex, and but gets tased for her troubles. Alex says he's going to hand her over to the Beast, and hoping he can yoink all the information they need out of her adult brain, he does just that. 
Mm-hmm. Elsewhere, Cyclops and the Bedlam Brothers are approached by Angel. He's there to warn Scott about the rumors of a full-scale war brewing in Europe. Over at Heaven, Alex is off making time with Scarlet, who is not the Scarlet Witch, apparently. Nope. <laughs> so he reveals that he wants to, you know, off his brother and claim his rightful position at Apocalypse's side. After he leaves, Scarlet makes a phone call. You see, we wouldn't know it, but she's a spy. Oh, I see. Back at Beast, Cyclops learns of the torture being conducted on Lorna Dane and orders it stopped. After all, Apocalypse is still negotiating with Europe to keep the peace. Sure he is. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that, that negotiation. <laughs> As Scott leaves, Lorna believes he's Magneto. Talk about a fixation here. You know, geez, everywhere she looks, and daddy issues <laughs> on top of that. Uh, that night, Lorna is rescued by someone in a cloak with a glowing red eye. They're attacked by North Star and Aurora, but Psychar, the cloaked individual, is easily able to take them down. Uh, he delivers Lorna to Val Cooper. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 176, December 1983, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. She's a special assistant to the President's National Security Advisor with a primary concern of the danger mutants posed to the United States. She was a part of the commission that claimed ownership to the Captain America intellectual property during one of the several dozen times Stephen Rogers uh, denounced that role. Uh, Val helped choose his replacement, John Walker, who we'd later know as U.S. Agent. Val Cooper was corrupted by the Shadow King in order to shoot Mystique. She was able to will herself out of it and turn the gun on herself, but she got better, don't worry. Cooper played a role in having the second incarnation of X-Factor work as a governmental-sponsored government-sponsored entity. She'd be replaced as liaison to the team by Forge. And wouldn't you know it, Havoc saw the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Factor three, Factor X number three. We have May 1995 cover date. This is called Open Wounds by John Francis Moore, Steve Epting, and Terry Dodson. Uh, one of the weirdo hybrids created by Hank McCoy busts out of the pens. Cyclops and Havoc are able to take it down. Havoc also comments at how poorly the pens are running under the new leadership. Very subtle, Havoc, yeah. Yeah, yeah a little passive-aggressive, a little, you know... He, he, he's being passed over a lot, though, I gotta admit. This guy's got, a, got an axe <laughs> to grind, up. yeah. Uh, outside, Jean Grey arrives, and, oh, by the way, she's got long hair again somehow. Yeah. Uh, she hopes to reach Mr. Sinister so they can overthrow Apocalypse before the Human High Council drops their nukes. Well, about Sinister... He don't live here no more. Uh, she stops around the place until she's taken by surprise by a wolf. And as Jean fights it off, Havoc blasts her in the back. Over at Club Heaven, the Bedlam brothers arrive to arrest Scarlet, who they know has been in cahoots with the Human High Council. You might be asking, when did they find this out? Well, that was in Amazing X-Men number two, which we will be talking about next week. All right. Now, uh, okay, this is going to be very important. She's nauseous, mm, for whatever reason. Mm. But Tries to escape anyway. She doesn't get all that far. What's more, Angel doesn't even try to help her. He's like, nah, it sucks to be you. <laughs> uh, he does wonder aloud, though. I wonder if Alex knows that you're a spy. I, I would venture to say no, because she'd probably be dead. Yeah. Um, back at the pens, Havoc confronts Cyclops and accuses him of being a spy. He brings him to McCoy's lab and shows him Jean Grey. Whoa. Oh, Scott is stunned, and we hop into a flashback about an early encounter between Scott and Jean. Alex gives Scott an out, says to prove you're not a traitor by killing Jean Grey. Scott ain't about to do that. 
and so he's attacked by the Guthries. Havoc uh, decides to promote the Guthries to prelates. Uh, I'm not sure he's got the authority to do that, but it is the thought that counts. In fairness, though, he also promotes himself to commander of the base. Yeah, I'm I'm positive he doesn't have the authority to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, that's just, you can't just promote I mean, yourself. How you, how, how's that going to get the payroll? <laughs> really? I mean, how do you got to the human resource? Yeah. Uh, so Havoc let hand Cyclops over to McCoy to do with him as he pleases. Gene's able to telekinetically lift Cyclops' visor, and he blasts McCoy, and together, the two of them escape. In the throne room of Apocalypse, Apocalypse learns that Alex has succeeded Scott as ruler of the pens, and he's pretty cool with it. He asks Rex to pass a message on to Alex, and the pens are to be shut down, and all of the prisoners culled. It's like he just Why got not? the job. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're shutting, we're shutting down the department. Sorry. We're we're cl- you'll get your severance. We're just closing down this. Uh, <laughs> this uh, <laughs> you're being laid off. Exactly. Yeah. This is a you know we're 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 consolidating here. <laughs> we're downsizing havoc. Sorry. Uh, now we're gonna wrap this one up in Factor X number four, June 1995, cover date. Stories called Reckonings by John Francis Moore, Steve Epting, and Terry Dodson. Now Havoc gives the order for the elite to cull the pens. The Beast and the Bedlams ain't so sure about that. After all, you know, the Beast has a vested interest in keeping his test subjects alive, obviously. And uh, the Bedlams aren't keen on killing the weak. Uh, Seems like they're definitely in the wrong line of work then, I gotta say. I mean, at the very least, they're working for the wrong boss. I mean, that's that's Apocalypse. That's its whole thing, is is that the only strong survive, yeah. Now, Havoc gives the order again. Oh, and also find his brother and kill him as well. Right. Uh, Now, speaking of his brother, we have Scott and Gene on the run with designs on releasing all the prisoners before they can be called. They run into the Bedlams, who actually wind up siding with them. They offer to help Scott by dealing with them pesky Guthries. Back at Club Heaven, Angel shows his true colors no longer playing both sides. He turns on the Infinites. And then over at the base, the Guthries and Bedlams fight it out, with the Bedlams getting the better of that uh, competition. Over in the Black Tower, Cyclops and Jean release more prisoners, this time by literally boiling the brain trust right in their jars. Yeah, they're pretty useless. I, you know, once you, once you turn up the heat underneath them, there's not <laughs> a lot more. Not a whole lot they can do. Not the they can't they run. Can nope. Yeah. Uh, upstairs, Havoc interrogates Scarlet. That would be the spy Scarlet. Uh, asked why she he shouldn't kill her where she stands, but I mean we mentioned she was nauseous a little bit earlier, so obviously she, she's pregnant, right? Any time a woman is nauseous in in any literature, in fiction, yeah, yeah, she must be pregnant. And Alex is shocked by this. Then the lights go out, courtesy of the Bedlams. In his lab, Hank McCoy is attacked by by a bunch of his test subjects, and so he flees to greener pastures. Cyclops and Jean continue leading the freed prisoners out of the base, but Havoc attacks. After some brother-versus-brother action, Cyclops wins. He does refuse to kill Alex, though. He and Jean and a whole bunch of prisoners successfully escape. Later on, that wolf that attacked Jean a few issues back wakes Havoc up. <laughs> why? Where did this, why did this come back? All right. And when Havoc wakes up, he swears to kill his brother. Next, X-Men Omega. But first, <laughs> Generation <laughs> Next, number two, April 1995, cover date. Hither comes the Sugar Man, 
by Scott Lubdell and Chris Bachelow. 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 What do we say? Bachelow. One of those. Yeah. Uh, we say both. We, say. we, we do. We usually do. We say go every back which and way. Forth. One day he'll, he'll correct us and we'll do the right one. Uh, Bachelow is when we do too sometimes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> born August 23rd, 1965 in Portage La Prairie, Canada. Uh, though Canadian, he was raised in Southern California. Chris studied at Cal State, Long Beach, and majored in graphic art. Drew for some underground comics during college. Uh, for DC Vertigo, he drew Sandman and Death. Bachelot's first published work was on Sandman number 12, January 1990, cover date, though he had already received his assignment for Peter Milligan written Shade the Changing Man. He was selected by Neil Gaiman to draw, bo- draw both of Death's miniseries. This was Death, The High Cost of Living in 1993, and Death, The Time of Your Life in 1996. For Marvel, he penciled a few issues here and there before joining up with Scott Lubdell on Generation X, which brings us right about to this point. Yes, uh, we open with Ilyana Rasputin and a young girl named Ace, and they're hiding inside a cave, careful to remain still and quiet because he's here. Who's he? Well, that's the Sugar Man. First appearance, here and now. Uh, this man, uh, he's basically a giant face on a round body. It's like kind of like uh, like Danny DeVito fell into like a, <laughs> like a mutation device. Yeah. Uh, this, this fella runs the camp. And uh, old Suge comes sniffing around. Uh, literally, he's snorting and sniffing. Yeah. Uh, before he stops, turns and walks away. He's kind of an incredibly gross... Yeah, he's found. Thing, person, thing, or whatever. Uh, top side, a pair of guards are taking a ride on a carriage crudely named, crudely marked a pox shuttle. I love it. <laughs> They're bragging about their recent kills. They certainly don't know that their driver's actually Generation Next member, Skin, and also that their fellow passenger is Chamber. Jono kills the two guards with his psionic powers. Outside the core, we join Colossus and Kitty Pride. They're arguing about how they're going to infiltrate. Uh... Colossus quickly grows impatient and decides to just bust in without Shadowcat. No sooner does he step away than she gets captured by a goofball named Undercloak. I think you need a braces to correct that, right? I think that's how that works. So, yeah. yeah. So, so are we gonna are we gonna give this guy a bio? No, no. By the time we're done, Colossus will have already smashed him to death with a boulder. So don't worry about it. True, true. Yeah. Well, well, waste not, want not. <laughs> right. Uh, now we we jump to a spa in the downtown area where Husk <laughs> is bathing a disgusting cretin named Quietus. Now he's suspicious not to see his quote regular girl. Paige assures him that she's just out sick. Quietus goes to give Paige a kiss, at which she nearly vomits. Uh, he reveals that he has a vaporizer in the room that only makes mutants sick. <laughs> so she's not getting sick by the sight of him. It's actually by this. Wow. So uh, so he's figured out that she's a mutie, and he punches her butt good. Then he gets thirsty. He, he literally stops beating her because he gets thirsty. <laughs> it's a hard work to give out a beating, and, you know? <laughs> and, and he's going to add insult to injury by actually stealing a drink from Husk's own flask. Wow. Then he gets back to work slamming Paige against the wall. When suddenly he keels over and bubbles begin foaming out of his body. You see, what was actually inside the flask was our old friend Vicente. You. Who we, who we guess just dug his way out of Quietus's body. Oh, uh, gross. <laughs> it's pretty foul. Yeah. Uh, now, Vicente cleans off, and he and Paige go through Quietus's files to see if they might lead them to Ileana. In the courtyard, Mondo, disguised as part of a brick wall, snatches a fellow who's checking the energy gauges. 
Elsewhere, Vicente and Husk er, operate Quietus' body like puppet style. Uh, they're incited. You know, Paige is in the head, and Vicente fills out the added mass to kind of make it work. It's really gross. Uh, it's sort of like when, you know, three kids are stacking each other under a long coat. Similar kind yep. of thing. <laughs> uh, they're doing this to chat up and uh, Quietus' gang, who have nothing to report anyway, so... <laughs> They then meet up with Skin and Chamber, who they make quick excuse for in order to keep them nearby. Down below, Ileana and Ace are met by a fat dude with a pitchfork. He spits water at them as though he was a fireplug to wake them up, and then he walks away. And that's the list. We'll see of that guy. All right. <laughs> we hop into Generation Next, number three, May 1995 cover date. Story's called It Only Hurts When I Sing by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo. It usually only hurts other people when I sing, so <laughs> it's, it's a nice change. Now, uh, we open with uh, Skin and Chamber looking on as the human slaves work the yard of, of the uh, Seattle core there. Uh, now, they're being over, these humans are being overseen by some real horrible-looking slavers, just like monstrous folks. Uh, now, one of the guards kills a man for fraternizing with his daughter. Which is to say he offered her food since the last time they'd eaten was three days ago. No fraternizing over food. <laughs> right. She uh, then shows a little bit of a rebellion in herself and throws a rock at the guard and then gets thrown off the side of a cliff for her troubles. Oh. It's going to become a theme. The underground uh, cliff, honest. Okay. Yeah, we got a few of them. <laughs> now, Chamber watches this all go down, but he does not act. Mondo, however, still in brick wall form, does. He kills the guard and promises him bad karma in the next life. I mean, death is enough. You don't have to promise a bad afterlife, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, back to Quietus, who is working in his office. Fake, that's, you know, Quietus being offered by Vicente and uh, Paige. Husk. Husk. Uh, a secretary informs him that he is a guest, and it's the sugar man. I really think the sugar man needs a theme, you know. He does. Something sleazy. He does. <laughs> Uh, Sugar Man claims to have been contacted by the Shadow King, who noticed someone sci-surfing their files. He also suspects, there, there, su- suspects there's about to be a break-in at the core. Fake Quietus attempts to convince him that nobody's that stupid, which gets a laugh. It also, more importantly, gets him to leave, and Husk and Vicente then make out, still with the Quietus face, though. What? It's really gross. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Now, outside, uh, you know, the, the straws that stir the drink, we have Kitty and Colossus. They wait for the signal. That's, that's it. They're All just right. out there waiting. Uh, now, uh, back in the down below, Ilyana talks to an old woman named May while they work. Now, work, in this case, is carrying large rocks from one side of the, wherever they are to the other. So I guess these are some of those shovel-ready Exactly. Jobs. Anybody, you know what I mean? Entry level, we call that. Yeah. Right. Now, a guard starts harassing them, but... Gets thrown off a cliff before he can interject. Again, are we underground? What's going on? This core must be like the cliff capital of the world yeah, here. Really, it's, it's like it's like you know, that first step is a doozy of a new place. <laughs> <laughs> no, luckily Mondo is there to save the day before the god the guard makes it to Ileana, and he absorbs her into his stomach. There's a, you know, there's a lot of inhabiting other people's bodies in a gross way in this yeah, series. It's, it's kind of freaking me out. <laughs> yeah. Now, elsewhere, Skin and Chamber attack a guard and celebrate loudly. <laughs> Fake Quietus creeps up to tell them to, you know, maybe keep, maybe keep it down. <laughs> We're trying to sneak around, right? Oh, God, boy, what a good name for it, though, you know? Hey, Quietus said quiet. <laughs> just then, Sugar Man pops in, and he might have just heard the entire thing. Oh, no. 
Outside, Kitty and Colossus finally get their sign from Know-It-All alert, alerting them that Mondo has Ileana in his stomach, if you'll recall, stuffed in there. <laughs> uh, Kitty and Colossus go intangible and float down to the core. We wrap this up with Sugarman commanding Quietus to kill Chamber, and this issue ends with a single gunshot. In Generation Next number 4, June 1995 cover date, titled Bye by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bacciallo. Ileana is sleeping inside Mondo's stomach. <laughs> Must be comfortable in there. Must be. Uh, she, she wakes up and reaches outside, and a, g- <laughs> a guard notices the tiny glove hand popping out of Mondo's chest. Back in Quietus's office, Sugar Man has demanded Quietus shoot Chamber, and so he did. Worth noting, Sugar Man wields a Mjolnir-looking hammer with the word sugar etched on it. Very pimped out, I'll tell you. Yeah, just, just in case, you know, you forget who it belongs exactly. to. Exactly. I'm the Sugar Man. <laughs> <laughs> Believing Quietus has turned on the core, Sugar Man runs him through with his tongue spear, which is to say he uses his tongue as though it were a spear. Uh, this is where Paige and Vicente, whatever his name is, lose the plot, and uh, it's revealed that they've been impersonating Quietus. Sugarman then orders his toadies to kill the mutants. Then, an explosion! Wow. Turns out that Jono's not dead after all. He was just using his psionic powers to make it look as though he was shot. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right. okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, now, a fight is on, and Colossus and Kitty join the fray. Down below, Mondo tosses a guard off the cliff. So many, so many cliffs here, all of them very, very uh, high up. Ace wanders up to him and asks Mondo if he would mind taking her too, and he says he'll try, but before he can, he's impaled by the never-ending tongue of the Sugar Man, who then goes on to swipe Ileana, until he gets stopped by the arriving Colossus, who beats the ever-loving hell out of him. Don't touch his sister, buddy, even mm-hmm. with that, especially now with that freaky spear tongue. Yeah. With Ileana and Ace in tow, Generation Next heads towards the exit. On the way out, they see a raging battle between the human slaves and mutant oppressors. Chamber, Ace, and Skin are dragged into the fight. Kitty wants to stay behind and help out, but Peter is not having any of it. Oh, Vicenzo, who's, who Husk is carrying, piggybacked, dies. Yeah, he just dies. Uh, Kitty and Colossus, they abandon Husk, too. Uh, Kitty phases Colossus and Ileana outside, and then explains that she's going to go back inside to help with the battle. Pete still ain't having none of that. He hands Ileana over to Kitty and says he'll go back himself. We wrap up with Kitty and Ileana waiting by a campfire for Colossus to return with the kids. Colossus does return, but he does so alone. Generation Next is dead. But the Sugar Man is not. <laughs> Next, X Men Omega. Y'all can't kill the Sugar Man, child. Uh-huh. I got the sugar. <laughs> Next up is Weapon X number two. That's had an April 1995 cover date. This was titled Fire in the Sky by Larry Hama and Adam Kubert. Uh, we did talk a little bit about Larry Hama, I think, last week, right? But uh, mm-hmm. a little more about him, or actually a little less about him, really. He was born <laughs> June 7th, 1949. He planned to be a painter, so he attended the High School of Art and Design. His first comics work was a project for Castle of Frankenstein magazine when he was only 16 years old. He also submitted work to the underground comics tabloid Gothic Blimp Works in 1969. Hama would serve in the United States Army from 69 to 1971. 
He was a firearms and explosives ordnance expert in Vietnam, serving in the 18th Engineer Brigade. This would serve him well during his run as editor for Marvel Comics' The Nam from 1986 to 1993. Upon return, he would find work at Wally Wood's Manhattan studio, where he would assist with the syndicated strips Sally Forth and Cannon. He was able to score a spot at Neil Adams' Continuity Associates studio, and he joined the inking gang known as Krusty Bunkers. His first work as a Krusty Bunker was The Slaves of the Mahars story in DC Comics' Weird Worlds No. 2 that had a November 1972 cover date. Hammer would briefly take over for Gil Kane on the Iron Fist feature in Marvel Premiere, those issues 16 through 19, July through November 1974 cover. He was part of the seminal independent book, Big Apple Comics with an X, number one, September 1975 cover. For the rest of the 70s, Hammer would work as an editor for DC Comics, and he oversaw titles including Wonder Woman, Super Friends, Warlord, and even Welcome Back, Kata. Also during the mid to late 70s, he tried his hand at acting. He'd appear in an episode of MASH, and he also played a role in a spoof of Apocalypse Now on Saturday Night Live. Just before we tick over into the 1980s, Hammer, along with Michael Golden, would create Bucky O'Hare. This was 19, I'm sorry, 1979. Although the character wouldn't actually see print until Echoes of Future Past, number one, May 1984 cover date from Continuity Comics. Uh, Bucky O'Hare would go on to have an animated series, a video game, and action figures. And speaking of action figures, in the 1980s, and perhaps what Larry Hammer's best known for, was G.I. Joe, a real American hero. He claims he only received the gig to write that comic after editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was turned down by every other writer in the Marvel bullpen. Hammer used a story pitch he put together as a Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. spin-off series that he'd call Fury Force. That was a backstory for the uh, G.I. Joe property. Hammer would also write the file cards that came on the packaging for each G.I. Joe action figure. I think he named a lot of them, too. Pretty sure. Uh, Hammer's Marvel run of G.I. Joe, a real American hero, would be an, run an impressive... 155 issues. Well, really long after the toy's popularity, I think, but... For sure, February yeah. 92 to October 94. Uh, or 82, right? 82, no? yeah. Uh, and Hama would just so happen to be in the midst of a long run on the Wolverine title when the Age of Apocalypse rolled in. Across the table, we have Adam Cubitt, born October 6, 1959. Uh, He grew up in in Dover, New Jersey. He's the son of Joe Cubitt and the brother of Adam Cubitt. He would attend the Rochester Institute of Technology, and he would graduate with a degree in medical illustration. After this, he would attend his father's school, the Cubitt School, in his hometown of Dover, New Jersey. Adam's first credited artwork was a story called Gremlins that appeared in Sergeant Rock number 394, November 1984 cover date. He'd do various other work for DC and the Independence for the rest of the decade, including a collaboration with his brother on an Adam Strange prestige format miniseries. Adam would score the gig on Wolverine, and his first issue was number 75, part of the Phalanx Covenant. It was the very issue we learned that Logan had bone claws under all that heavy metal. Now, since that wasn't all that long ago, it's no surprise that Adam is still around when the book finds itself taking part in this epic crossover event. Yeah, he got dragged into it, too. Mm-hmm. Willingly, folks, willingly. <laughs> uh, now, Logan is searching for Jean, we begin the issue, and she apparently had been missing since last night, but he finds her straight away. At the drop-off point for the Great Sentinel airlift, where she's checking on a pair of kids who had come with a whole mess of folks from Apocalypse's America as refugees. They reunite, and some of the refugees take note and recognize Logan as Weapon X. 
One of those ref, one of them says, though, aren't you Wolverine? Anyway, but uh, <laughs> not, one, not that one. Not that one. Anyway, uh, one of those refugees <laughs> is Donald Pierce. First appearance was X-Men number 129, January 1980 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Uh, we met Pierce when he was the White Bishop of the Hellfire Club. During the Dark Phoenix conflict, Pierce was gravely injured by Logan Wolverine. When Logan carved him up, it was revealed that Pierce was a cyborg. He'd disappear for a time, resurfacing alongside Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers. And after most of the X-Men passed through the Siege Perilous, the Reavers would capture and torture Wolverine. As mentioned last week, Jubilee wound up saving him. Pierce would continue to haunt Wolverine, creating a pair of androids, Albert, who looked just like Wolverine if he were a robot, <laughs> and LCD. Get it? Uh-huh. Oh boy, oh boy. Uh, now, Logan talks with Jean about her stance against bombing Apocalypse. You know, that plan that Brian Braddock wouldn't shut up about. <laughs> really? He was, like, pontificating yeah. on top of the Big Ben. Uh, now, Jean thinks there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Uh, <laughs> at another scanner, the Brotherhood of Chaos busts in. Those are the geeks that included Copycat and Box, who we met at the end of Amazing X-Men number one last episode. Apparently, they were pretty active in Amazing X-Men number two, which we'll be talking about next week. Logan kills Box with ease and uses this event as an example why they gotta bomb America. <laughs> Gene still isn't too sure about that. Weapon X goes all, you do what you gotta do, eh? Before walking away. He actually says, eh, too. I love it. <laughs> And now, back at the Human High Council, Logan meets up with Mariko. They almost flirt, but not really. Uh, she reminds him that the last time they met, Logan was there to see her father. Her father is Lord Shingen. Full name, Shingen Arata. First appearance, Wolverine Number 1. That's the miniseries from September 1982 cover, created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. Shingen is a Yakuza boss and, as mentioned, the father to Mariko Yoshida. Also the father of the Silver Samurai. At this point in history, Shingen was dead, having been killed in a duel with Wolverine. A duel that Mariko believed that Wolverine cheated in. Now, he'll eventually get better for some reason. I don't know why you'd need Lord Shingen again, but I guess you do. <laughs> Here, whatever. Right. <laughs> now, anyway, Mariko doesn't trust Brian Braddock, and I don't think we do either. No, He's not in this incarnation. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, she believes that he has a vested interest in escalating a war between humans and mutants. You know, just like any real politician probably would. Yeah, this story's a little too close to home, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> one of Braddock's blimps then explodes, and they're under attack by mutant terrorists, or altered human terrorists, if you ask them. And them, in this case, is Donald Pierce. Uh, the baddies are headed toward the airship that has the analog guidance system for Braddock's doomsday attack, so Logan hops into action. Elsewhere, Moira suggests sacrificing the Human High Council if it means saving the doomsday guidance system, but Braddock, he ain't having none of that. He ain't sacrificing anything but America in this case. <laughs> Frost, Frost calls for an attack of the commandeered airship, but Mariko rushes in to let them know Logan is on it. Uh, not sure they care, little lady. Remember, the diplomatic immunity or whatever is only temporary anyway, you know? Yeah, they didn't have any immunity left up. No. Uh, now, Logan beats up bad guys, and the airship explodes. He hears Gene telepathically say goodbye as he walks away from the flaming crash. Logan catches up with her just as she's leaving for America on a little propeller plane that... <laughs> 
definitely shouldn't be able to make a transatlantic trip, No, I, I trip, wouldn't right? trust it to do that. Not at all. Nope. <laughs> I don't think it would get off the ground, much less cross the Atlantic. Uh, now, she says if he's there to kill her, to please make it quick. Now, instead of killing her, he hops off and he, he lets her go. <laughs> you know, probably thinks she's not going to make it anyway, so yeah. go. Uh, we hop over to Weapon X number 3, May 1995, cover date. The story is called The Common Right of Toads and Men by Larry Hammer and Adam Cubitt. Here we have Logan heading for Vundagor Mountain. Not awake? Not awake? Oh, are you with us? Okay, yeah. Good, good. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. back. I'm back, yeah. Good, good, good. Now, he stumbles upon a pair of enhanced humans who have been laying low awaiting his arrival. They are Deadeye and Mangle. Get any bios? Nope. No, All right. No, no, no. Logan whoops them pretty quick. He then walks past the grave of the Scarlet Witch and the place where he was nearly burned to death by Apocalypse's men. He then runs smack dab into his old friend, Carol Danvers. First appearance was Marvel Superheroes number 13, March 1968, cover date, created by Roy Thomas and Gene Colan, former NASA chief of security and victim of blackouts. During these blackouts, she becomes Ms. Marvel, only she doesn't know it at first. There's also this Cree and Marvel stuff involved. It's, you yeah, know, the, the story messy. of Captain Marvel is very weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, after writing a scathing tell all book about her time in NASA, she took a job at the Daily Bugle. Carol established herself as a superhero and worked alongside the Avengers, eventually joining the team full time taking over for the Scarlet Witch, who was at that time on leave. Things get dicey when Henry Peter Gyrick wants Ms. Marvel's fingerprints, though, because as a farmer NASA type, her prints are already in the system. Yeah, it would really jeopardize her secret identity. Definitely. Now, famously, Carol becomes pregnant in very bizarre fashion by the alleged son of the villain Immortus. Amortis is Nathaniel Richards, also known as, among several, many, many identities, he's also Kang the Conqueror, Some, sometimes. Right. Uh, now, this went down in the much-maligned Avengers number 200, October 1980, co-plotted by the editor-in-chief himself, Jim Shooter. In a December 12, 2001 blog post, Shooter actually denounced the entire thing. He says it sucked. Because uh, the entire thing, if you read it, Really comes off as Carol being raped. Yeah, it um, yeah. it's really bad. Uh, and and her pregnancy only lasts a few days. She gives birth to a baby boy who grows into adulthood within hours. So it's not a good time. No, that's a convenient. Yeah. Pre- that's a conveniency pregnancy right there. <laughs> it is, call that. It yeah. is. <laughs> now she would vanish from the book for about a year. So you know they knew they screwed up. <laughs> yep. uh, and she would return in Avengers Annual number ten. This is October nineteen eighty one. It was also the first appearance of Rogue where she basically lays into the Avengers for letting things go down the way they did. I don't really blame her. i got to be honest. No, like, I'm, I'm with her. Guys, yeah. what are we on the team for to prevent <laughs> just things just like this? Uh, Carol then moved to San Francisco, where she'd have a run-in with Rogue and Mystique. Rogue would touch her and permanently absorb nearly all of her Ms. Marvel powers. Also, her memories, Professor X would assist in getting most of them back, though. During a battle with the Brood, an unpowered Carol would get zapped by an evolutionary ray, which triggered her latent powers, and she became the cosmic-powered binary that was in Uncanny X-Men number 163, November 1982 cover date. From here, she joined up with the Star Jammers. While Carol was in space, the now-heroic rogue would be tortured by the memories that she'd stolen from her until going through the Siege Perilous. Handy thing, that, isn't it? You know, Mm -hmm. just gotta wipe it away. (laughs) 
Uh, the hangover cure to cure all hangovers. Uh, Carol would return to Earth, and while on Muir Island, she became sh- possessed by the Shadow King, which is really just kind of what happens if you visit Muir Island. Yeah. You're bound to get possessed by the Shadow King. <laughs> uh, she'd fight Rogue and seemingly be killed by Magneto, but she'd, of course, get better, and that's where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Now, Carol asks where his better half is, and she re- she refers to her as the... I don't even know how to pronounce these words. The puissant and pulchritudinous. Yes, the puissant and pulchritudinous Jean Grey. She wants to know where she is. Mm, yeah, what? <laughs> uh, whatever it means, uh, you know, Carol and Logan, they're, they're pals. They head up to uh, a tower in order to chat. Hop back to London, the Trasks, who are Mora and Bolivar. They discuss the possibility that their very own Brian Braddock might not be mentally well enough to lead the strike against Apocalypse. He might be off his rocker, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> what are they talking about? I mean, you know, some of the best and most sane leaders go on theatrical speeches punctuated by lightning flashes, right? Hey, I mean, those lightning flashes aren't his fault. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, they just happened. They couldn't do anything. Now back at Wundagore, Logan and Carol reach the top of the tower where they meet... Gateway, whose first appearance was in Uncanny X-Men number 229, May 1988, cover date. Created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. He's an aboriginal mutant who the X-Men met during their time in the Australian outback, with the power to teleport people from one place to another even facilitating a ladies' day out at the mall during that time. Mm -hmm. He once aided the group the Reverse because they threatened to destroy a place that wasn't quite special to him if he didn't. Uh, Most recently, we saw Gateway arrive on the lawn of the Massachusetts Academy with Penance in Generation X number one. Getting ahead of ourselves, it would eventually be revealed that Gateway is a distant ancestor to Bishop in Extreme Extreme X-Men number four, (laughs) October 2001 cover date, but we don't know that now. No, no. Just so happens, Gateway was exactly who Logan was looking for. Tries talking to him, but Gateway doesn't reply. He never replies. That's kind of his thing. Carol tells Logan that Gateway is trying to document the entire history of the world before it's all gone for good. This Gateway is definitely more digital than his normal 616 counterpart. Yeah, he usually just, like, sits down, like, swinging a rock in the sky wearing, like, a diaper. And, and <laughs> now he's, like, now he's all teched out. Yeah. He's, he's digging into the computer. Uh, now, Logan's got no time for such nonsense, so he does one of the things he does best. He beats up Gateway's computer terminal. Beating up computer terminals is what I do <laughs> is best. Is what I do best. <laughs> now, this rouses Gateway from his trance. Uh, Logan tells him that they need him to pilot the lead airship in the nuclear strike against Apocalypse. Well, Gateway ain't down with that. Yeah, why? Uh, who would be? <laughs> now then, those goofballs from earlier, the, the, uh, those Deadeye and Mangle, they're merged together as a Mangle Deadeye <laughs> abomination, and they enter the room. <laughs> they're quite easy pickings for Carol and Logan. I see why they didn't get a bio. Now I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, outside, another altered human shows up. This is the illustrious Vultura. She flies around and stuff, but for the name like Vulture, you already you pretty knew much that. already knew that. Yeah, what else yeah. is she going to do except for eat carrion? <laughs> uh, Gateway, under orders from Logan, teleports the three of them onto Pierce's ship, and they kill everybody. <laughs> Carol sacrifices herself to take down Pierce. She yanks the pit in a grenade, and the two of them go for a parachuteless skydive. And Logan mourns his dead pal. And Gateway agrees to pilot the Armada now because Logan's all sad. Mm-hmm. Weapon X number four, June 1995, cover date titled, uh, the story is uh, Into the Maelstrom by Larry Hama and Adam Kubert. 
Over in Eurasia, Emma Frost walks gateway through a VR reenactment of the Great Culling, wherein Apocalypse is attempting to do away with every human in North America, in case you had forgotten the entire crux of like so most of the story here. <laughs> uh, gateway is a bit full of himself, doesn't think he needs the primer, but Logan begs his indulgence just in case it comes up. They show Gateway an innocent girl being murdered, and now he starts to understand... Just what they're up again. I'm sorry. Why am I? <laughs> Why does he only know the stakes then? Anyway, uh, the council. I mean, it is, he's a superhero, and they, you know. And they have it on file. Good lord! I know. What is this? So is this what you show all the new recruits? Come here. Let me show you something. All right, can you handle that? All right, you're in. Uh, the council proceeds with her plan to strike at Apocalypse's New York Citadel. Speaking of which, we pop over there ourselves to see a chat between Apocalypse and our friend Rex. Now, Rex knows that the Human High Council is readying an attack. Apocalypse doesn't seem terribly interested. Uh, you know, after all, he's got Donald Pierce on the job. Yeah, uh, buddy, about Donald Pierce, he's, uh... <laughs> well, Rex tells Apocalypse that he hasn't heard from Pierce. Norse, nor the slipperiest of horsemen, Mikhail, who is also supposedly in Eurasia. Getting the feeling we're never going to meet Mikhail. No. <laughs> uh, now, back in Eurasia, the council boards the airships. Braddock is throwing a fit because nobody believes in him. Which <laughs> kind of proves their point, right? You all think I'm crazy because I <laughs> all I do is yell and, and pontificate. Anyway. <laughs> Emma and Logan break off for a chat. Emma's afraid that Braddock's acting suicidal. Uh, Logan's annoyed that Jean turned his back turned her back on him. Uh, during this trip, the airship is attacked by altered humans, including Donald freaking Pierce? Seriously? I mean, what, where did he come from? <laughs> Who radios for some infants to come in and, and blow the armada out of the sky? Oh, another of the altered humans. Uh, Carol Danvers is also. Oh, boy. During the fracas, Brian Braddock switches sides like twice. Uh, he is then, thankfully, killed. So we don't have to worry about his crazy uh, psychotic rants anymore. Just as Carol explains how Pierce saved her, Pierce kills her. What? Oh, Logan then finally kills Pierce. We really mean it this time. He's super dead. Yeah. Never, never to come back. Uh, Gateway opens a portal large enough for the entire armada to fit through, and they're headed for the heartland of Apocalypse's America in beautiful Indiana. <laughs> uh, next, X-Men Omega, but not really. Not really. No, I'll be in two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but next week, we're going to wrap up the other half of these miniseries, and also give you the entirety of another one. We're going to be doing Amazing X-Men issues 2 through 4, Gambit and the Externals 2 through 4, Excalibre 2 through 4, X-Men 2 through 4, and the new one, X-Universe 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. The next universe is going to fill us in on everything else going on in the Marvel Universe during the Age of Apocalypse. So, is, I mean, I love... Yeah, alternate stories like this, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a huge Elseworlds fan. Love what if, love all that sure. stuff. Uh, love it. I like, I love this concept, but boy, there's some goofy stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of moving. I would even go so far as say too many things happening. We could and 
And it's weird. It's like it, it like straddles that line about being like too beholden to the real universe and also like struggling not to be like it at all. Right. It's yeah, yeah. so weird. Yeah. yeah it's, it's like it's like one foot in, one foot out. And it's uh, mm-hmm. it's it's, you know, it's good. Though. I, I am enjoying it, but I, I can't help but laugh at some of it. It's just there is some silliness. Yes. Definitely wearing its 90s colors. So I'll give I'll say <laughs> that for him. But that's uh, that's fine. So if uh, you have any comments on uh, what we've been reading up to so far, or if you're also similarly annoyed that there were two Wolverines essentially in the same issue, <laughs> you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. We're on Tumblr, cosmicteamillhistory.tumblr.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at cosmicteamill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our weekly writings on uh, DC Comics current stuff on weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you can find Chris's daily writings on his personal blog, chrisisaninfiniteearth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week now for the last 5,000 weeks and running, something like that. <laughs> just about. Just uh, about. Feel, feels about that. Uh, I've been doing the uh, awesome series on Vartok recently that I've just been in love with, have not really been able to comment, unfortunately, just with dashing through it on my phone, but uh, it's uh, so good. I love it. I, I always thought Our that character yeah. made no sense. Uh, just like such a weird... Him and... Uh, who's the, who's the, wasn't there a Western guy that always attacked Superman back in the day? Oh, boy. What's yeah, name? I don't... You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think... Uh, he's, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. It's just like, why? But, what uh, a weird guy. <laughs> but I think uh, Vartox has, uh, has single-handedly saved the blog for a little while, because I was... It was starting to drag, but... Uh, Going into the Vartok story is really making me excited again because uh, it, it is just so out there. Is he? He's based after Sean Connery, right? For the time, yep, I mean, it looks from just, I, Yeah, I, it never, it never occurred to me until you know reading your blog. So yeah, Chris, is on, <laughs> Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. You got to check it out. It is terrific, and there's uh, stuff to read. Boy, you could be spending a lot of hours on that blog at this point if Lots you're so lots, fit. Yes. Yep. <laughs> we also have the show blog, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find show notes. Uh, what, I keep forgetting that word. What does it mean when everything's in order? Chronological. That's the word, yes. <laughs> the chronological listing of every episode of the uh, Cosmic Treadmill, also Weird Comics History, uh, uh, all the little silly things we've done, the real comics history, and now even adding some uh, young and animalistic content That's for, right. uh, we for do listening the, uh, pleasure. We've been doing, I don't know if everyone knows, we do young animal reviews for the uh, Weird Science DC Comics podcast, and we're starting to, now that young animal imprint is coming to a close, I think we're going to... Uh, start dumping those on you yeah, folks. See um, what you think of that. Sure. But uh, as I say, that's also the place to listen to stuff chronologically. It really is. Sure. Like, don't 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 hurt yourself on the uh, Podbean. So uh, <laughs> I, I think we've given them quite a bit to munch on for this episode. You got anything else for him, Chris? No, I think we're good. Well, until next week, folks. I want you to keep it on the treadmill, apocalyptically. Not that apocalyptically.